0: It's a good prayer, a needy prayer, and a prayer that we know our Lord will answer since He gave it so explicitly that we should pray the Lord of the harvest that He would send forth the labourers into the harvest. And we sing it prayerfully tonight, trusting the Lord will be pleased to do the same in these days as he's done in the past. And that the Lord's people will look for a harvest and expect a harvest. It's time for a harvest. It's time for the Lord to work. May the Lord give us a sense of what he is able to do and what he may do even in coming days. Luke chapter 8, beloved, turn in the Word of God to Luke chapter 8. I want to read again the verses from verse 26 and following. We've been going through this gospel, and I think this is message number 65. So we're getting there. We're in no hurry. Seeking to understand the Word of God. And may the Lord have her write His Word in her hearts and give us a love especially for these accounts that the Spirit has given concerning the ministry of our wonderful Savior. And let us hear the Word of God in Luke chapter 8 from verse 26. Let us hear it, let us receive it with faith and with profit. And may the Lord bless the very reading of His Word. Luke eight, verse 26. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. When he went forth to land, there met him out of the city a certain man which had devils long time, and wear no clothes, neither abode in any house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, Torment me not. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for oftentimes it had caught him, and he was kept bound with chains and in fetters, and he brake the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. And there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them. And he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. When they that fed them saw what was done, they fled and went and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what was done and came to Jesus, and found the man out of whom the devils were departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They also which saw it told them by what means he that was possessed of the devils was healed. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. And he went up into the ship and returned back again. Now the man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine own house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way, and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Amen. We praise the Lord for his word, and may we benefit from it tonight. Let's still our hearts again in prayer. Let's all of us momentarily, bow before the Lord, realizing that this is a word that is spiritually discerned. We need the Lord to divide His word to us and impart His truth to our hearts. Lord, while it's in our minds again, we would pray that Thou wilt send forth the reapers, that Thou wilt look upon the pitiful condition of this country and send forth men who know God, men who have a heart to preach Christ, and men by their prayers, by their waiting on God, by their recognition of their own weakness, men who will be filled with the Holy Ghost and do a work that will last. God, Raise up men, raise up young men that will prompt us and encourage us with their zeal, with the intensity of their fervor for Christ. God, do it. Do it as thou didst in the past. When we see the days of the Reformation, the days of the Methodists, The days of Chalmers and the Free Church of Scotland, and the many preachers and missionaries that went out in the middle of the 19th century. Do it again, Lord. It's thy work to do. And we pray that thou wilt bring the harvest, and even tonight may there be some per perishing soul seek Christ. Give us then the Holy Ghost. We pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. When reading this passage, it's difficult, I think, to try to imagine what would go on if the man that we've read of was living in our day. I imagine that should the demoniac be living in the 21st century, that's in all likelihood, he would be classified as having mental trouble. That he would go to a doctor or he would be encouraged to go and seek medical help and that upon observing him and his behavior, that very swiftly he would be given medication that would alter his erratic behavior. I find it highly unlikely that such a person was living today that our minds would go to the fact that he's possessed with a demon, I think immediately we'd start to medicate them and give them enough medication that would radically alter their lives. And there's a difficulty when reading this passage today, a difficulty when dealing with a passage like this and seeking to avoid the extremes. One extreme is that you may read this and say, well, there's no such thing as mental health problems. When we find people behaving erratically or acting as we find here or with elements of this kind of behavior, as we have read, that this is demonic. It's always demonic. So, if we see someone who's troubled and acting strangely, isolating themselves, and all the things that we said last week in, in kind of simplifying the behavior as we read it here in this passage, it would be very easy for us then to to think, well, this, this is what it must be. If we see someone living this way, it must be the devil. It's not mental health problems. That's not an issue. It's, it's always spiritual. That would be one extreme. And the other extreme is to decide that all erratic behavior is purely Physiological or psychological, and there's no room for demonic influences. There's no place for analysing and saying this is a spiritual problem. So I'm aware of those two extremes, and I'm aware that there may be some here tonight who will wonder, maybe about a loved one or a friend, or perhaps even about themselves in some way. Wonder, well, well, what is true about me is is are my problems or my loved one's problems? Are they? Are they purely mental? Are they something that can be treated, ought to be treated with medication and help and care, or are they spiritual? Are these issues, are the manifestation of this behavior, is it a spiritual problem? And there's no easy answer to that. It has to be looked at case by case. And I think all we can do is simply say that either option is a, is a possibility. There may be those that are acting in unusual ways, and we have to be open to the fact that this may be Satan, it may be demonic, or it may be something that is biological, mental, and needs to be treated in that fashion as such. I don't know if you've ever been confronted with someone who's behaving erratically, If you've ever had to deal with someone close to you trying to figure out what's going on, it's not easy. And of course, the temptation is to one extreme or the other. It just depends on your experience and your reading and your influences. Those who perhaps have never really seen anything like this will immediately then say, this is is satanic, This this is a spiritual issue. And they begin to throw verses at the person and pray over them and so on and so forth not entertaining the possibility that really they need medical attention. And again, the other extreme, those who are aware of medical help and have a disposition to be uh, kind of conscious of the fact that people can enter into dark places in their minds and will run quickly then to to the the medical help that's available to us today without considering the possibility that, that God is doing something in this person's life that the devil perhaps is working in their lives, that God is humbling them. I mean, there's so many ways of looking at it. We, we know this is all being driven by demons, but we're also aware of Nebuchadnezzar and his, his wild way of living, and that was, that was God. God was working there, bringing this man, humbling this man in a way that was to lay him low and teach him the lessons that the Lord was teaching him. So it's not easy. There's no easy answer for these things. And should you ever have to deal with someone close to you that is living in a fashion that doesn't make any sense and I could tell you some odd things that I have seen and and you you simply don't know how to respond. You, you You are completely at a loss to understand how to assimilate the behavior, and what's the best course of action to help. But the other side of this is to remember that when we read the Word of God, there is a clear and distinct overactivity of demonic activity, a, a great rise in demonic activity through the ministry of the Messiah you read the Word of God, there's almost nothing said of anything like this in the Old Testament. We don't read about people being possessed with devils. And even in the ministry of the apostles, there's only a couple of instances where we have someone that's possessed with devils. And you would imagine that after the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the apostles went out and Luke is recording and documenting the history, that it would be filled with events like this, but that's not the case. As I say, there's only a couple of events and when you read the epistles of the New Testament, again, you don't find questions arising in the church continually, how do we deal with people who are demon-possessed and, and, and discussion, insight given from the apostle how to, how to deal with matters like this. There, there's nothing like that. There's no extensive mention of people being possessed with demons and how to minister to them and how to pray for them and all that. There's, there's no mention of it. It's almost as if it really wasn't a problem after the Lord Jesus ascended. That being the case, it would seem that manifestations like this are rare. Now, when you read the Gospels, they are common. We find many instances of people being possessed with demons, but that's happening in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it appears, I think the only way of understanding this is that with Satan seeing the coming of the Messiah, he got to work. Even before the ministry began of our Lord Jesus, he saw what was going on and he, he went into overdrive in taking control of men's lives, possessing them, and, and, and driving them to behavior like this. Now that's not to say that we won't see it today. There are times when they're are very dark things that go on in the world. But it seems that there's been no time in history where we have such a concentrated work of the devil as we have in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan was no doubt aware of what we read in First John chapter 3, verse 8. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so if you were aware of that, if you were Satan aware that the coming of, of the Messiah is to destroy your work, you ramp up your activity. You push in a way that you've never pushed before. You recognize that you're, you're just hanging in there. You're, you, you, you see your kingdom coming to an end, and so you drive further at destroying everyone and everything you can. That seems to be the response of Satan with the arrival of the Messiah. Prior to the cross, Jesus said in John 12, 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And so he's indicating again as he makes his way to the cross that there is going to be an impact upon Satan. There's going to be an influence upon him. There's going to be a a subduing of his power to some degree. Not that he will be completely eradicated after the cross and the resurrection of Christ, but that there will be a clear awareness that He is not in control. And the gospel is going to go into the nations. There's going to be hindrances. There's going to be efforts of demons to try and prevent it, but it's not going to stop it. And I think it's helpful for us to bear in mind that that really the contrast of, of what it was like Prior to the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, what the world was like in comparison to what the world became with the ascension of Jesus Christ in terms of the flowing of the gospel into the nations is something that we must keep in mind. The devil had the nations all to himself with the exception of what was going on largely in Israel. There were again certain seasons when the truth would spread to other territories and other regions when others would be brought in, when, when Gentiles will be gathered onto the God. But for the, the, the vast majority of the time, all the nations are in the, in the hands of the enemy. And immediately, with the ascension of Jesus Christ, immediately there is a spread of the Word of God into other nations. Never, never miss the little clause, the little phrase that we're given in Acts chapter 2 verse 5, that that all the nations were represented there on the day of Pentecost. The entire world, in a certain sense, the entire world was in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, represented by proselyte Jews coming and gathering for that feast. And with one sermon, when Peter stood up and preached the gospel, he planted seeds of gospel truth into people who were going to take that word to every nation under heaven. And that's what Satan couldn't stop. The prince of this world is judged, John 16, 11. When the Son of God took our humanity, it made a difference. It made a difference in the activity of Satan in this world. We read in Hebrews 2, Verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, they have a humanity. He also, that's the Son of God, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He took a real humanity. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. God cannot die. But the Son of God takes humanity in order that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And Satan spends all his energy, all his might in trying to prevent Jesus Christ from going to the cross and the ultimate success of his sacrifice on Calvary and the subsequent benefits as they flow to mankind through the preaching of Christ. It's worth noting and remembering for your comfort that when someone is saved, what we read here in Luke chapter 8 and the other accounts given about the demoniac, this cannot ever be the experience of one who is born again. There is no possibility of demons possessing a person who is indwelt by the Spirit. With the salvation that this man experienced, there was a driving out of demons never to return again. And so keep that in mind as you see all that goes on sometimes by those who profess to know Christ and Those that perhaps truly know Him, remember, if they truly know Christ and the Spirit is within them and they love the Lord, though they may reach dark places, don't say it's demonic if they know Christ. Reading this and realizing this, realizing the possibility that Satan can take over someone, destroy someone's life like this. What more reason do sinners have to run to Christ for salvation? Those that are without Christ are always, always living in the possibility that their lives might be ruined by Satan like this man. The only people who can be delivered and be sure that Satan will not get such a foothold are those who are in Christ and have received Christ as he offers himself. Tonight I want to finish the message that we began last Lord's Day. We entitled the message last week, Christ's Victory in His Conquest for Souls. Christ's Victory in His Conquest for Souls. And I sought to focus last week on the power of the devil to destroy a soul. I wanted to hone in. I wanted to spend time understanding that there is a power in Satan to destroy a soul. I'm not going to go over all the sub-points, but the, the primary points we considered last week, if you remember first, Satan is a destroyer of souls. He is a destroyer of souls. He is not to be bargained with. It's not a game. It's not a game to play with Ouija boards and dabble in the occult. It's not a game to invite evil spirits and demonic influences into your life. It's not a game to play with these things because you're opening yourself up to the one who is a destroyer of souls, someone who does not stop, someone who has no sense of sympathy, someone who has no consideration of your welfare, but finds delight and finds it to be his goal to utterly and entirely destroy souls. He finds this delight because he hates Christ. And while he cannot affect and influence the Lord Jesus Christ, so he destroys men. So he will destroy you. Satan is a destroyer of souls. Satan was a destroyer of this soul. We have read of it here again. Reading of this one. Let's let's just see again what is detailed about this man. There met him a man, verse 27, out of the city, a certain man which had devils long time and wear no clothes Neither abode in any house but in the tombs. this is a frightful presentation of a way of living there, there, there's no, there's no hope here for a long time devils are controlling his life, dictating his life. you can see again, struck by the remark of the end of verse 29 the detail that's given that he was driven of the devil into the wilderness. he was driven of the devil into the wilderness. you remember look as already given to us the account of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. And on that occasion, if you remember, if you go back in this gospel and read it for yourself, you will see that the Spirit led Christ into the wilderness. And here we read of one who is driven of the devil into the wilderness. And I don't want to take much time there, but to see even the distinction there in terms of, of, of the verbs that are used. The Spirit led Christ. The devil drives this man. Christ has a purpose in his going into the wilderness to, be, to confront the devil, to experience temptation, to go through all of that as part of his mediatorial role in order to save us. But he is led of the Spirit. The Spirit leads him. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit leads souls. And we talk about that, and rightly so, we should say God leads us. God leads His people. God is always leading His people. But when it comes to Satan, Satan drives souls. This man was driven of the devil into the wilderness. And there's a distinction there, a clear distinction in the Christian life. As we walk with the Lord, as we spend time with the Lord and fellowship with the Lord, we enjoy something of being led. And part of that leading is knowing his, the comfort of His Word, the assurances of His Word. We realize what He is asking us to do. We, we try to bring our lives into conformity with Scripture. And as we see what Scripture says, we follow. So we read the Word of God, we see what the will of God is, and we follow as a servant to the Master. And the Spirit helps us in this. The Spirit leads us. He leads us to verses. He brings those verses to mind when we're in a conundrum, unsure what to do. So often the Word of God is a lamp onto our feet and a light onto our path. And the Lord gently leads His people. He leads them with His Word. He instructs their hearts. He teaches them the right way to go. But Satan doesn't come like that. Satan doesn't come and gently bring truth to hearts. Satan just drives at souls. He drives them. He forces them. He has no authority. He has no word to say to you, here's what you should do. At best, what he comes and does is he twists the Word of God and he says, hath God said in order to drive you into some place where you ought not to be, to do something you ought not to do. He drives souls. He's a hard taskmaster. And you can see it in the lives of men who are given over to the devil. They are driven. They are driven. They're not finding pleasure in it. They're driven to drink. They're driven to drugs. They're driven to other addictions. They're driven to these things. They feel themselves so captivated, so enslaved by it. And this is Satan's desire to enslave minds and hearts and drive and drive and drive to exhaust the soul and destroy the life but the Lord leads. Satan was a destroyer of this soul. All that you read was the work of Satan. And also Satan at his worst puts the marks of hell upon a soul. We considered how so much of what is reflected in his experience is a little insight into what happens when souls perish without Christ and end up, in God's hell, this man is experiencing a little bit of what it's like to die without Christ. But tonight, we consider the power of Christ to deliver a soul. We have seen the power of the devil to destroy a soul. Let's see the power of Christ to deliver a soul. Christ has power to deliver. And this is the great hope of this passage, because you're seeing man at his worst. None of us have loved ones who have been so taken over by the enemy as this man. And this is the hope. This is the encouragement. That when we read this and we see the awful condition of this man, we are reminded that Christ is able that there's no soul too hard, no soul too far away, too far gone that Christ cannot deliver. So whatever loved one that you have upon your heart and mind, be encouraged, Christian. There is great hope. Note first that he is a threat to the demonic world. Christ is a threat to the demonic world. You see in verse 28 that they confess his identity. When he saw Jesus he cried out and fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. They knew exactly who Jesus was. The demons that are possessing this man, the spokesperson, the demonic spokesperson on behalf of the thousands of demons that were in him, speaks up and confesses clearly, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? Now, this language is elevating the position of of the Lord Jesus. It is seeing Him for who He truly is. Now, there's, there's almost a sense of irony here when you go back up the passage and you see the storm that the disciples were in, and upon seeing the Lord Jesus stilling the storm, we read in verse 25, they being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, what manner of man is this? for He commandeth even the winds and the water, and they obey Him. They're they're amazed. They're trying to take in who Jesus Christ is, but the demons know exactly who He is. They know who they're dealing with. Never forget, as James writes, the devils believe. The devils believe and tremble. But they believe. They believe. The devils believe. They're orthodox. They know the truth. In terms of their understanding of truth, they have orthodoxy well planted into their hearts. They're not coming with a misrepresentation of Jesus Christ here. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, there's His humanity. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And here He is in His divinity, the Son of God Most High. They see the two natures. They recognize who this is. This is Jesus. The anointed Messiah, the Son of God. They know more theology than many who inhabit pulpits today. So they confess His identity. But they also confess His sovereignty. You read from verse 30, Jesus asked him, saying, "'What is thy name?' And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. Again, just to remind you, Legion is a a military term that indicates 6,000 soldiers or thereabouts. And while we don't know if there were 6,000 demons in this man, it reflects the fact that there were thousands, at least 2,000 demons, that inhabited this man's being. Verse 31. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. So you see their recognition of his authority. They besought him that he would not command them. Now again, some will read this and say, Well, well, why is there an interaction here at all? But the Lord is using this interaction, he is instructing through this interaction, but but don't miss, don't mistake the interaction as a lack of his sovereignty. He is sovereign here, and they're recognizing his sovereignty. They know he is sovereign. They besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep, and there was there a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they besought him that he would suffer them, allow them to enter into them. They are looking for permission. This is like Job chapter 1 when the devil's going around looking, and the Lord says, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan is well aware of who Job is, and he recognizes, You've put a hedge around him. But he needs permission. He needs permission to touch Job. And likewise, here, the demons need permission in their movements. And so they seek that permission. And they besought him that he would suffer them to enter into them, these swine, and he suffered them. Then went the devils out of the man and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the lake and were choked. It's good just to step back and recognize these beings for what they really are. They have been around for millennia. They remain in the beginning. And they they have been in a fallen state for thousands of years moving around the earth, giving themselves to Satan's command. They're not like us, with a a little short space here upon the earth, trying to understand how to live and, and what goes on in this world and so on and so forth. They've been around for a long time. And these powerful beings, far more powerful than any man, are subject to Jesus Christ. They have great experience, they have great power, they have great knowledge, but they are nothing. As they stand in the presence of the God-man, they are nothing. And they are completely subject to his bidding. You see what they desire... You see, first of all, what they don't desire, verse 31, they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep or into the abyss, it could be translated. There's an indication here of what they know is coming. In Matthew chapter 8, and the account that's given there about this scene, we're told in verse 29 that they actually say to the Lord Jesus, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Have you come before the time? they are well aware that there's going to be a termination of their experience and what they're doing on the earth. There's going to be an end. And they're going to be cast into the abyss. Hell was created, never forget, hell was created for the devil and his angels. God made hell to throw them into it because they were part of a rebellion against God. And so they're expecting this, they're anticipating a future day when they're going to be cast into the abyss. And recognizing His sovereignty and His right to cast them where they'll ultimately end up, they're coming and saying, don't do it yet, don't command us to go into the deep or the abyss now, have you come to tremendous before the time? They're aware that the Lord is working according to a certain schedule and this is not what they're expecting and so they collectively seek his permission to enter into the swine. Just, just as an aside, remember this. Remember that they asked to go into the swine when someone tells you that a, a house is haunted or a room is haunted, and they think that there's some demon inhabiting a chair or a table or some other piece of furniture. If you read the scriptures, you find no reference of demons inhabiting inanimate objects. They're always in living beings. They're always in creatures, animals, or people. They don't live in trees. They don't live in other inanimate objects. They move about and sometimes inhabit living beings. I often joke... (laughs) Maybe your experience with printers isn't like mine, but uh, I've said for many years now that I don't believe that devils can possess inanimate objects, but if they can, they live in printers. There's There's no doubt about that whatsoever in my mind. But they don't. Remember that when someone is taken up with some idea about demons possessing some kind of... Uh, inanimate object. There, there is no scriptural indication that that is the case. But they grant, they, they desire this, that they might be pushed into the swine, go into the swine, have access into the swine, to move from this man into the swine. Now, there's lots about this I can't explain to you. I don't know all the details. I don't know all that's behind this. But I do know this. What happens to the swine is a clear indication of what they were trying to do to the man. I don't know if you know, but pigs are good swimmers. They're very capable swimmers. They have no problem swimming. They are very strong swimmers. They're not just about can get by. They are strong swimmers. And when we read here that they enter into the swine, and they run violently down the steep place and into the lake and were choked, I think you're getting a clear indication, since pigs naturally have an ability to swim, but they were not able to swim. You have here a clear indication of what they were trying to do all along with this man. They were trying to kill him. Turn for a moment to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Reading from verse 17, here a man comes with a son who's possessed with what is put here in the Word of God, a dumb spirit. So Mark 9 verse 17, and one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him he teareth him, and he fumeth and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answered him, and saith, O faithless generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the Spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground, and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. When Jesus saw that, the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and desperate, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And so on and so forth. But I want you to see what the father observed. You see what he saw? You see how this spirit had been influencing him? And oft times it had cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. This spirit is trying to destroy my son. I can't take my eye off him. We can't leave him alone. The spirit that is possessing him is trying to kill him. And I put it to you, beloved, that this is exactly what these demons were trying to do in relation to this demon-possessed man. They were trying to kill him. And as soon as they enter the swine... They get their desire. They bring end to life. Now I want you to keep this in mind. The next time, what is it, three and a half years or so since, was it Harambe, the gorilla? Was taken out of the, was it Cincinnati Zoo? And the little child, the toddler, made its way into the, the area where the gorilla was and, and one of the workers took out a rifle and killed the gorilla instantly in order to save the little boy. And there was an uproar. you remember? It? There was an uproar. An uproar, angry that the gorilla that his life would be taken. People were going crazy. They were, they, were, they were so upset at the taking of the life of the gorilla. Now, I'm not into cruelty against animals and killing them unnecessarily. But I want you to see this passage, because this was the passage that came to mind when that event occurred. That the Lord did not hesitate for a second to see swine, 2,000 swine, put to death in order to deliver one human soul. And it may have been 1,000, 2,000 gorillas, or 2,000 bald eagles, or 2,000 other endangered species that people are all up in arms about trying to protect them and they'd be angry that even one would be killed. They would rather see the child die The Lord He'd wipe out all animals if it meant the deliverance of one precious soul. So I am not saying tonight that we advocate cruelty to animals, but I am saying this. Be careful with the rising worship of animals and despising Of men. There are people who quite happily would see people dead. They have no love for souls at all. So Christ is a threat to the demonic world. You see that. He is completely sovereign. They know who He is, and He shows and exercises sovereignty over them. But also, not only is He a threat to the demonic world, He will rectify the sinner's world. He will rectify the sinner's world. Two things here. First, the Lord sees the sinner's condition. The Lord sees the sinner's condition. Now, I touched on this last week, but I highlight it again. Reading the passage, you see that the Lord travels across Galilee, goes to this region to help, to deliver one soul, just one soul. It's as He made His way to Samaria, seeing that one woman, looking at the, the opportunity, the need, the, the compelling heart that he had to get there, to, to be there, to arrange an appointment with this woman and bring deliverance to her soul. And so it is for this man. He sees with his omniscience, he sees this man. He knows the will of the Father. He is walking perfectly and harmony with what the Father desires, and that's going to take him across the sea, through the storm, to the other side, to meet with one demon-possessed soul and liberate that soul. He saw him. Now we read here in the passage that the man saw him. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus. But the Lord saw him long before. He laid eyes on Jesus. And so it is with the salvation of any soul. Who among us was searching for the Lord Jesus Christ? Who among us was searching for salvation? Who among us was the first desiring to come to God and convince God that He should come and step into our lives? No, John's right. We love Him because He first loved us. The one who moves first is the Lord. And this is is all through Scripture. You remember in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? And they ran and hid themselves, took the fig leaves, tried to cover themselves, and they they ran and hid, and they they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the cool of the day. Adam, Adam, where art thou? There's there's the Lord moving towards them. There's grace. Grace before a word is uttered. Grace is on display in the condescension of the Lord, the Son of God, coming into the Garden of Eden to reach out to Adam, and rescue him from his fallen condition. The Lord sees her condition. He sees the fallen condition of men. And let me say tonight, if you're here and your sins are unforgiven, and you're wondering, can you be forgiven? You're wondering, can you go to heaven? Can you have your sins washed away? Can you know peace with God? The Lord's already seen you in your plight, and He has made a way. Christ died for the ungodly. And if you're willing to accept tonight, I'm ungodly, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. If you're willing to accept that, Christ welcomes, invites all to come to Him. He moves towards you. He is here moving towards you. Every time the gospel is preached, the Lord is moving towards you. He is condescending. He is showing mercy. If He had no mercy for sinners, He would silence every preacher and take them all away. But as long as there are preachers and the saints of God who will tell sinners that Jesus is mighty to save, there is always, always hope. He is showing that he sees the condition of men and he is moved to come and deliver them. There's no love like the love of Jesus. world may turn its back on us family may disappoint us parents may fail us but Jesus feels no one Christian remember it you don't have to twist the Lord's arm to come to your aid he is covenanted to be your God and be your saviour when you're looking for him he's already there When you're looking for Him, He's already sent His Spirit to give you the desire to look for Him. We read it in the psalm this morning. The appeal that the Lord would quicken, quicken our hearts that we may call upon His name. The Lord is always acting first. He is always seeing the plight of sinners. And He will rectify. He sees this man, this it's wonderful, is wonderful how he sees them across the sea, through the storm, discerning his need, courageously standing before him and giving a full and complete deliverance. Look at what he experiences. Look at it. Verse 35, When they went out to see what was done, and came to Jesus and found the man out of whom the devils were departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Everything's righted. Instead of living among the dead, now he's sitting at the feet of the life-giving Son of God. Instead of being naked, Depicting his lack of shame for his sin, now he is clothed. Instead of being deranged in mind, now he is in his right mind. (laughs) You know, salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. Salvation is a radical transformation of the life. It's amazing to see what happens when someone is saved. They become a different person especially if they've been so under the dominion and power of Satan, like this man was. To any degree, any man who has lived in the world and been under such a sway of demonic influence and power, giving themselves to sin, it is so wonderful to see that transformation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things pass away. Behold, all things are become new. And that's the salvation Jesus Christ provides. And He provides it tonight You don't have to fear the trajectory you're on, wondering will you always live this miserable life without hope, not knowing how to live, how to spend your life, what your purpose is here upon the earth. If you're saved, immediately you're given purpose. Immediately your mind changes. You realize this is why I'm here. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is how to live. I've been wasting years of my life Wandering in tombs among the dead, spending all of this time accomplishing nothing. And all of a sudden, with the entrance of the gospel and the life giving power of the Word of God, he's changed. The Lord sees the condition of men, he knows how to correct that condition. And he shows his concern. Yes, he sees her condition. He shows his concern. He knows what men need. And he is able to do whatever it is you need. Thirdly, we have seen that he is a threat to the demonic world. He will rectify the sinner's world. And see, finally, he will send witnesses to a lost world. He will send witnesses to a lost world. Look at verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the country of the Gadarenes round about besought him to depart from them, for they were taken with great fear. Again, note that. Note the fear. A revelation of God brings fear to hearts. When God manifests his power people don't stand around and say, oh, look, isn't this a wonderful display of power? Remember what I said a couple of weeks back looking at the the storm and the experience of the disciples and the fear that came upon their hearts? I mean, they were afraid of the storm, but they were even more afraid. Look at verse 25. They, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, what manner of man is this? The, the, The activity of God. The power of God brings fear to hearts. Remember Revelation 1. When the risen Christ comes to John, he fell down as one dead. And When God shows up, it humbles men. Well, you see the same fear here again. The Lord brings fear into hearts. But instead of it turning them on to Him, subduing them, making them open to hear what He has to say, they want him. They besought him to depart from them. And The man out of whom the devils were departed, verse 38, besought him that he might be with him. He's wanting to be with Christ. He wants to be there. He's appreciated there. He can serve him. He wants to follow him. But Jesus sent him away saying, look at this. Return to thine own house. And show how great things God hath done unto thee. I'll tell you, you don't need a course in apologetics to be a witness for Christ. You just need to know what great things the Lord has done for you. That's it. I have said this before. It may be anecdotal, but it's also scriptural. But whenever I was converted, I had this... Desire to tell people about the Lord, I didn't know the first thing. I had no idea. I was completely ignorant of the Scriptures. All I knew was what I had gleaned in my reading of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and halfway through the book of Acts, when about five or six weeks after my conversion, I began to go on the doors to do evangelism. And I didn't know anything. If I met anyone who had any knowledge of the Bible, I would have, I would have been beat But the one thing I could share is is presented right here. Return to thine own house and show how great things God has done unto thee. And Christian, if you have nothing else to say, you have to know that. You have to be acquainted with your own testimony, and you're able to say, it's great what the Lord has done for me. And if you don't have answers for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and all the rest of it, and you're thinking, I need to memorize all these verses, I need to know how to address all these theological errors that they have, listen, listen, don't, don't hesitate to talk to them because you don't have all those verses and you don't have all that knowledge because you have something they don't have, and it's a testimony of Christ's saving power in your life. And I have seen it. I have seen it in their eyes. When you tell them what the Lord has done and they have their whole experience of entering in to the watchtower and being a Jehovah's Witness or growing up as a Mormon. And the best they can tell you is they had a, a burning in their bosom at some time, but they have no real testimony of transformative power in their life. I have seen them stand there envious. the testimony of a true believer. And this is what the Lord's doing. He sends men into the world. He's not done with them when they're saved. Now the life begins. Now the life begins. When you're saved, that's when life begins. That's when you start living. So Christian, (laughs) professing to be saved, are you living? Are you? Because if you're really living... Combined with that, evidence of that, is the fact that you're amazed that God sent His Son into the world to save you. And you're so amazed, you want the world to know about it. Now, I'm not saying we always take every opportunity given to us, but I am saying this, there has to be a bubbling over. If we really experience Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, my cup runneth over. And we need to know sufficient blessing that not only blesses their own hearts. I think most Christians just about get enough blessing to keep them from utterly apostatizing and removing themselves from the Lord. They, They just experience enough blessing not to deny Christ. But you can never be a blessing to the world if you're just surviving the Christian life. You need to bubble over. If you're to be a blessing, you need surplus. And like Joseph, your branches need to run over the wall, They need to reach places, and lives that the Lord would have you influence and impact. Now You may not be the one who sits down and points them to Christ and opening the Word of God to them, but you can be a link in the chain. You can get the thoughts going. You can get them thinking about things that they haven't thought about at all. Through simple testimony, through simply doing what this man did, return to thine own house, go back home, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. Go and tell it, and he obeys. Look at it. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. That's that's great. That is great. That's what we need. That's what Greenville needs, you know. Greenville needs everyone who truly knows Christ to really start talking about the Lord. There's a lot of assumptions made, because everyone goes to church, everyone's walked an aisle, and everyone says they're a Christian. But I'll tell you this, there's a whole lot of them, and they know nothing of this transformative power of the gospel. And when you go into their lives bubbling over with the the joy of the Lord, rejoicing in your sins forgiven, and they've had some pathetic experience of walking an aisle, an emotional, momentary, fleeting experience that passed as soon as they vacated the building… It's a complete change, a contrast for them to see you walking day by day in a full joy of what Christ has done and what He means to you. Christian, don't be shy. Go your way tonight. Go your way. See it as you walk out the door, as I told you before. As you walk out the door, imagine, we don't have it written up, but imagine it. You're now entering your mission field. You leave this place. You're entering your mission field. You're not waiting. But the Lord says tonight, go home, return to your house, go to your community, and show, testify how great things God has done unto thee. Just tell them, tell them what He has done for you. You know your own story. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us. We're a miserable bunch, you know. We can be so miserable. A bunch of Christians happy that we're on our way to heaven, but not overcome with a fresh sense. This is what you hear me say it. So often in prayer, I, I say to the Lord, Lord, let me not lose the wonder of it. Please help me not to lose the wonder of it. Because it's almost the saddest thing. Almost, with the exception of someone who's going to hell, utterly lost. The other most saddest Depiction of humanity is a professing believer who has lost the wonder, the wonder that God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that of whosoever, whosoever, even me, if if I believe in Him, I'll never perish. So you're commissioned tonight, Christian. You're commissioned to go to a lost world and bring the gospel. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. in every congregation there's always a variety of experience where believers are at any given moment in their lives some of you are on the mountaintop you're loving the Lord you're rejoicing in the Lord you're talking to people you're telling people about the Lord Great, keep going on, stay humble keep doing what you're doing and others of you you need to You need to get back what you've lost. You need to return to a place. You need to do like Abraham did, returning to Bethel. Getting back to the place where you meet with God and you find joy in fellowship with God and you realize what he has done for you. Dear friend of mine, dear brother in the Lord, Many years ago, he said to me, When the Christian's really living as they ought, when they're really living with the risen Christ in their hearts, they're like the tomb. They can only contain Christ for a short season. Before long, Christ comes out. He comes out in their speech, He comes out in their life, He comes out in testimony. you're not saved and you need help and you want to be saved you want to know your sins are forgiven you'd like tonight to settle the score with God to come before him and confess your sins acknowledge your unbelief recognize yourself as a sinner you can confess those sins now you can be saved now but if you need any help Speak to me before you leave. Lord, many of us here tonight have loved ones, and they're lost. And sometimes we wonder if they'll ever be saved. We thank Thee for this record. It reminds us there's none too hard for Christ. And we are thankful that even the most wild life, a life that's been lived for the devil for years, can in an instant be transformed and become a living testimony, become an instrument for good, become a vessel of honor for the master. Lord, make us all those vessels of honor. Make every Christian here tonight know what it is to bubble over with joy and tell a perishing world that Jesus saves. Mobilize thy people. Move us, Lord. Work by thy Spirit. And receive our thanks for the day that we've enjoyed thus far. Be with all those who go home immediately following the service and all the fellowship and interaction with believers make it sweet and profitable. Bless the food provided for those that go downstairs. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy blood-bought people now and evermore. Amen.